0: Hi, this is Herb Kressel, uh, Editor of Radiology, uh, welcoming you to the March 2010 Radiology Podcast. Uh, This month, uh, we'll begin with an interview uh, with uh, Dr. Edward Lee of Children's Hospital in Boston, and we'll be speaking about an interesting study that he and his colleagues performed to uh, discern the features of H1N1 viral infection in chest radiographs in the pediatric age group. Then my colleague, Dr. Deborah Levine, Senior Deputy Editor of Radiology, will interview Dr. Jenny Lee, an investigator at Massachusetts General Hospital, who with her colleagues performed a. A study using a simulation model to look at the cost-effectiveness of breast MRI and film mammography for screening BRCA1 gene mutation carriers. Uh, we hope that you enjoy this month's podcast, and as always, welcome your comments. Hi. This is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology, and today I'm joined by Dr. Edward Lee, who is a pediatric radiologist at Children's Hospital in Boston and assistant professor of radiology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Lee is the first author on a a very, very timely paper that actually has been published online ahead of print. uh, since the end of uh, December, on uh, swine origin influenza A uh, H1N1 viral infection in children, uh, initial chest radiographic findings. Welcome, Dr. Lee.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me, Dr. Kressel.
0: It's a pleasure. Just why did you actually decide to do this study?
1: Oh, um, what happened was that uh, during the last fall and the winter uh, in our hospital at Boston Children's Hospital, uh, we encountered a markedly increased number of pediatric patients with H1N1 viral infection and uh, with the various degrees of uh, disease severity. First, what we wanted to do was uh, to see whether there's any characteristic uh, radiographic findings uh, that would be helpful for us to make the correct diagnosis of h1n1 infection in children based on chest radiographs and secondly what we wanted to do was uh, we wanted to see whether there is any difference in terms of radiographic findings uh, between a pediatric patient with self-limited course of infection and those with a more severe disease course in other words uh, we wanted to find out uh, whether disease severity detected on initial chest radar breath uh, may have any value in predicting uh, ultimate disease severity and need for hospitalization uh, in children with H1N1 viral infection. And lastly, as you know, probably uh, there has been a previous report uh, stating that a patient with underlying medical conditions, uh, such as risk factors, Uh, they are more prone to H1N1 viral infection. Because of that, uh, what we wanted to do was, uh, we also wanted to assess whether uh, there was actually any association uh, between uh, pediatric patients' underlying medical conditions and their uh, outcomes.
0: And and what did you find in your study?
1: It was kind of interesting. Um, What we found is that uh, the frequency of the normal chest radiograph was actually significantly higher in patient group, uh, which was a self, which had a self-limited course of H1N1 viral infection, then uh, patient group uh, who had more severe courses. And in fact, uh, we observed 67% uh, of the chest radiograph, which was actually normal. And patient group consisted of pediatric patients with mild and uh, self-limited clinical course of H1N1 viral infection. Interestingly, the rate of normal chest radiograph in this group, uh, 67%, was very similar to the rate of normal chest radiograph, which was approximately 73% uh, from a previous study uh, performed in adult patients with uh, H1N1 viral infection. The one uh, other interesting uh, thing that we observed was that uh, there was a difference between what we saw in our population and uh, from the study uh, consisted with adult patients in a sense that uh, the substantial minority of the pediatric patients uh, in group one, um, in our study, uh, who did not really have normal chest vertebral but uh, they had a self-limited course of viral infection. Um, they had this imaging findings of um, increased pre interstitial markings with hyperinflation, uh, which were very similar to other more common low respiratory tract viral infection, uh, such as respiratory syncytial virus or parainfluenza virus infection that we usually see in children. So what we thought was that from a practical standpoint, uh, the radiologist and clinician uh, should be aware that a prominent peribronchial marking and hyperinflation may be associated with H1N1 viral infection uh, in children with a mild and self-limited clinical course. However, um, as you know, uh, these findings are very non-specific. Uh, therefore, it is impossible to actually differentiate uh, H1N1 viral infection in children from other more common uh, low respiratory tract infections based solely on the chest rate we findings. On the other hand, uh, we also observe. Uh, bilateral, typically symmetric, and multifocal areas of consolidation uh, without pleural effusion or lymphadenopathy in pediatric patients with more severe clinical course of H1N1 viral infection. Based on our findings, uh, we believe that the severity of the findings on initial chest radiographs do have some potential value uh, in terms of predicting uh, the ultimate disease severity and also need for hospitalization in children with H1N1 viral infection.
0: And uh, Dr. Lee, what about the, uh, the children that had uh, a variety of underlying medical conditions? Was the morphology of their disease different or the course of the disease different?
1: That was one of the uh, other um, aspects that we uh, investigated in our study. And uh, regarding the association between the frequency of underlying medical conditions and uh, clinical course of H1N1 viral infection among study groups that we had, uh, we found that the increased frequency of underlying medical conditions uh, in patients with more severe clinical course of H1N1 infection, which was actually consistent with uh, previously published information that a patient with underlying medical conditions or risk factors, they are more prone to H1N1 viral infection and their clinical course is also more severe. However, in terms of imaging finding-wise, um, we didn't think that there was any difference because we saw patchy ground glass um, opacity associated with our consolidation in any group of the patients, particularly inpatient and uh, in patient with ICU admission, so we didn't think that there was a difference in terms of the pattern or imaging mm-hmm. findings, but we thought that the frequency of the underlying medical condition has association with a uh, severity of the uh, disease process.
0: Well, uh, thank you. Your study, uh, you closed out your retrospective review, I guess, in October of two thousand nine, and now several months have have elapsed. And I wonder if you have uh, uh, any updates. What's happening to H1N1 uh, at Boston Children's Hospital? Uh, what's happened to the children that you studied? Any new insights in general on uh, H1N1? one
1: Yes, uh, very interesting question and actually uh, that's something that we are currently working on. We still see uh, children coming in with H1N1 infection. And uh, to be honest with you, a lot of these patients' chest rated findings, initial chest-weighted grab findings, uh, uh, what we reported, um, and then we still see ground glass opacities with a consolidation, uh, typically symmetric in a patient with more severe course mm-hmm. of uh, H1N1 infection. What we are also finding out is that uh, a lot of, most of these patients did pretty well, meaning that they recovered from the disease, and uh, some of the patients that we know of, um, the follow-up chest radar uh, everything, all the abnormality usually cleared up. So this brings kind of um, great, very interesting comparison to, as you know, a couple of years, several years ago, uh, we had a SARS infection.
0: Yes, I and, remember. And uh, um,
1: some of the pediatric patients with SARS infection, even though uh, after acute infection, uh, follow-up chest radar graph or CT was abnormal in majority of the patients but uh, I think that in patients with H1N1 viral infection, uh, when their acute phase is resolved, uh, usually uh, their follow-up test-witted web are usually normal. But as I mentioned to you before, uh, this is something that we are actually accumulating data So hopefully, uh, we'll have more
0: scientific information available for people later. Good. One last question. I don't know if you have uh, information on this, but I'm sure our listeners would be curious. Uh, Could you compare and contrast the findings observed in children with that which has been reported in adults? Oh, sure.
1: Um, As you know, uh, during our study, um, there were three very uh, interesting, um, actually, articles came out regarding H1N1 infection in adults. And uh, I think that comparing our results uh, to the results from um, other studies consist of adult patients, I think that the biggest difference is actually those uh, patients who had a self-limited course of infection, mild infection of H1N1 infection. I think that um, substantial po- um, portion of those patients' chest radiograph was normal. However, patients whose chest grab was not normal, what we saw was that um, very uh, typical hyperinflation with a pre cuffing um, coughing and a pre prominence, which is very typically seen in pediatric patients with other more common mm-hmm. uh, low respiratory tract infection which
0: was matched in adult uh, patient based on the results from other pa- uh, adult study. So I, I guess, uh, Ed, uh, for radiologists who are primarily used to dealing with adults, I guess the take-home message is that if you see this hyperinflation peribronchial pattern in a child, it doesn't portend a worse course and it's consistent with a benign course. Is that correct?
1: yes okay. uh, that's something that we definitely observed and then we kind of thought about what could be the reason why we do not see that um early viral bronchiolitis picture in adult patients. and one of the thing when we talked to our microbiologists and also other clinicians uh, some people uh, mentioned to me that could that be uh, in adult patients um, they developed strong immunity for example uh, when they were young they were infected with common uh, viral infections in the past, so they have more robust immunity, so when they encounter new virus, um, most of the patients with a strong immunity, they may not develop this early signs of the viral infection. On the other hand, um, pediatric populations who didn't really have a time to develop this immunity, they may, um, whenever they encounter this new virus, um, their test-grade findings uh, may be very similar to what we see in other uh, virus infections, which could be more
0: common. That's very, very interesting. Well, Dr. Lee, thanks so much for joining us. I really uh, enjoyed reading your study, and uh, I'm sure that our listeners will enjoy the uh, paper and have enjoyed uh, listening to you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
2: Hi, I'm Debbie Levine. I'm the senior deputy editor for radiology. And I'm speaking today with Dr. Janie Lee, who's a radiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and an instructor at Harvard Medical School, regarding her article, Cost-Effectiveness of Breast MRI and Film Mammography for Screening BRCA1 Gene Mutation Carriers. This will be published in the March issue of Radiology. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Thank you. Um, Can you summarize your study for our listeners?
3: Sure. The purpose of our study was to evaluate the clinical effectiveness and cost effectiveness of screening strategies using film uh, mammography and MRI alone and in combination in women with BRCA gene mutations. And to do this we developed a computer simulation model that allowed us to project long-term health benefits and lifetime costs. And what we found Well, and specifically what we did was we compared three screening strategies for these high-risk women, annual film mammography, annual MRI, and combined annual film mammography and MRI screening. And what we found was that of the three strategies, the combined strategy um, was best in terms of long-term outcomes in helping women live longer uh, with fewer breast cancer deaths. The most effective strategy was also the uh, strategy with the highest lifetime cost. And in our cost effectiveness, we found that uh, when compared with annual mammography alone, adding MRI uh, for screening cost about $69,000 per additional quality adjusted life year gained, or QALY, and at this point I thought it would define uh, what a QALY is. A quality-adjusted life year is a standard measure of health benefit that is um, commonly used in in cost-effectiveness analysis and is a measure that takes into account both length of life and quality of life.
2: Um, Great. So you really looked at just the BRCA1 mutation carriers because they're such high-risk women Um, And so you thought if you were going to be able to do a cost-benefit analysis, it would be best to really focus in on a woman like that. What percent of women in the U.S. are these mutation carriers? Women with
3: BRCA gene mutations tend to be a very small proportion of the population, probably less than 1% in total, but because their risk is so high, they account for about 5 to 10% of all the cancers that are diagnosed, and that's why we we felt it was an important population to focus on.
2: Um, And can you then look at your results and apply them to other groups, for example, BRCA2 mutation carriers?
3: You know, the BRCA2 uh, population has a a different age-specific incidence curve. So the way cancers uh, develop and are diagnosed in this population are different. So one of the goals of our, our model in terms of its future applications are to extend the model to that population. Currently, our study focuses only on the BRCA1 population.
2: So, um, some women don't know their BRCA status, in fact, many women don't, um, but, but these women might have a mother or a sister with breast cancer, and how would you uh, counsel such a woman about the benefit of obtaining an MR? The, the
3: way to talk about it, I think, would be to think about what we know and what we don't know. And so what we know is that women who have BRCA gene mutations have a significantly higher lifetime risk of developing breast cancer compared with uh, the general population. And we know that for these women, mammography is not as, as sensitive a test. So it's not as good at detecting breast cancer as it is in the general population. And we also know from uh, multiple studies that MRI can detect cancers in these high-risk women that are not visible on mammography and can detect them at smaller sizes and earlier stages. What we don't know is whether screening with MRI results in, in um, longer-term health benefits in terms of living longer and decreasing breast cancer mortality, which is why we perform this study. And, and um, based on our results, we think that there will be a benefit. Um, the other thing to take into account is that because MRI is a less, specific examination than mammography, there are uh, trade-offs, so that it is more likely that a woman who undergoes screening with both uh, mammography and MRI will have a false positive examination, and how a woman feels um, about having a false positive test result, meaning that she could have additional evaluation and maybe even a biopsy that in the end doesn't show cancer, is something that she needs to um, discuss with her doctor before making a decision.
2: Okay. Um, Great. I I don't know if you saw a recent article that we had in Radiology in January um, talking about reasons women at elevated risk of breast cancer refuse breast MR screening. Um, It was an article by uh, Wendy Berg looking at the Akron um, trial, and they found that a a surprisingly large percent of high-risk women actually decline having MR. Um, Can you factor something like that into your cost-benefit analysis, or is there no way to really look at that?
3: That decision really sort of comes before the situation that we um, modeled in our study. So in our study, we looked at women who were uh, asymptomatic, 25-year-old women with a known uh, BRCA mutation who had then chosen to undergo screening. But if you sort of back up, if if you're an asymptomatic mutation carrier, there are additional Choices and alternatives that are available um, that sort of come before this decision to undergo more intensive screening. So, some options are risk reducing surgery, either uh, mastectomy prophylactically or uh, prophylactic oophorectomy, uh, which some women choose, and chemo prevention with, uh, with medications such as tamoxifen or intensive screening, which is the scenario that we have uh, focused on in our study.
2: Great. Um, I'd like to focus in on cost just a little bit, because with the cost-benefit analysis, that's really important. And um, for our listeners who might not have read your paper yet, um, your assumption was that a screening MRI cost $577. Now, I work in Boston, and I asked our radiology practice manager what our charges are. Uh, for a screening MR and um, it was $3,113 for the technical component and about 271 for the professional component and we typically charge about three times the Medicare allowable rate so we get paid about a third of that so we get paid about $1100. Your estimates seem inexpensive to me and I was wondering if you could comment on this.
3: What we used in our paper was the national average for um, breast MRI, and, that, and our $577 was the global fee, which is both the professional and the technical fee combined. It is important to note that even in the Medicare fee schedule, there is variation according to geography, and then also variation in the technical reimbursement depending on the actual uh, site of the performance of the examination. So, for the technical fee in our particular study, we used, we used, um, the reimbursement for an examination performed in the hospital
2: outpatient setting. So at, at my institution, since our what we end up getting paid uh, is about $1,100, according to your estimates, um, screening with MR would then not be a cost-effective strategy, according to your sensitivity analysis, is that correct?
3: It would be less effective. So, in this, um, in the US, there's no real consensus currently about what value is the benchmark for cost effective. So, there's not a single number, and there's not even really a range of numbers where there's consensus about what can be considered cost-effectiveness. What we did in our study was we took a commonly cited range, which was fifty to to $100,000 per additional quality gained, and we did what's called a sensitivity analysis. So what we did was we, we sort of varied parameters to see whether any of them would change our results. And so we looked to see um, what might cause the cost effectiveness ratio that we had obtained to shift below $50,000 per quality, in which case something would be considered very cost effective, or above um, $100,000 per quality, beyond which something might be considered less cost effective. And one, so there were two important parameters that we found that influenced our findings, and the one that um, you bring up is the cost of a breast MR examination. The other was the lifetime risk of breast cancer. So as As the cost of a breast MRI increased, screening uh, with both mammography and MRI became less cost-effective, and as the cost decreased, it became more cost-effective. And you're correct in that we found a uh, a threshold where if the cost of an MRI rose from our base case value of um, $577 to beyond $960, it would be considered less cost-effective.
2: Okay, now this is going to get a little bit off the results of your paper, but starting with your paper, screening with MR um, is going to lead to an increased number of false positive examinations with an increased number of follow-up tests and patient anxiety. And this patient anxiety issue and false positive tests were really brought to the forefront by um, the U.S. Preventative Task Force um, document that recently came out talking about those issues. In your analysis, you showed 37 false positive screens for every breast cancer averted using mammography alone, compared to 137 with combined MR and mammography. And I'm just wondering how you think we can afford that in our healthcare system in terms of the machines that we'd have to have available, the radiologist availability, as well as all those um, costs and anxiety associated with all of this.
3: There's not a whole lot of context currently, uh, particularly in the high-risk BRCA population, um, about the impact of these false positives. A little bit of context that we do have is um, a previous survey of women's preferences in the U.S. population about how they might or might not accept um, false positives. And um, what they found in this study, they surveyed uh, women who were uh, adult women in this country, so 18 years of age or greater with no personal history of breast cancer. And what I found very interesting about the study was that they found that 63% of women surveyed um, indicated that they would accept 500 or more false positive screening tests to avert a death from breast cancer. So averting death from breast cancer is really a, a priority, a, a very important priority for women in this country. So I think that it would be acceptable for our, I think it's likely that it would be acceptable for patients in our population to, um, to have this kind of um, false positive rate associated with the screening strategy that also provides um, long-term health
2: Benefit. So, for listeners interested in looking at that study that Dr. Lee just quoted, it's reference number 38 in her article. Okay, and here's my last question. You found that annual MR was more effective as an adjunct to annual mammography rather than as a replacement. Um, but radiation risks weren't taken into account in this assessment, and we know that these BRCA1 mutation carriers might even be more susceptible to radiation effects than. Are women in the general population? I realize that these radiation risks are difficult to quantify and to model. Um, but did you think about this at all um, in your study? And um, could that at all be applied to your model?
3: We did, and I think that's a very important point. So uh, when we were developing the model, we reviewed the literature and um, and based on the available evidence, uh, decided that. Uh, radiation-induced risk, even in the BHA population, which is at incredibly high risk, um, was likely to be very small. And so we made a simplifying assumption for this analysis that there was no adverse effect associated with radiation from screening mammography. I think... Um, We have since decided, since this analysis, that even though we think the effects are very small, it is important to explicitly incorporate into the model because there is such concern about it. And rather than saying, boy, we think that risk is really small, um, using the model to provide a quantitative estimate of what we think the the risk associated with screening mammography is and what its effect might be on long-term outcomes. So it's something that we also agree is very important and we're incorporating into our ongoing analyses so our, um, our future studies will actually incorporate um, estimates that include radiation
2: induced risk. Great well thank you so much
3: it was an additional finding of our study that I thought was interesting was that um, in doing our cost-effectiveness analysis, it turned out that annual MRI was not as cost-effective as annual screening with both mammography and MRI, and that supports the American Cancer Society's uh, current recommendations that MRI should be used as an adjunct rather than as a replacement for mammography in high-risk women, I think that's, um I think that's worth highlighting.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you today.